Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelope the world today as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. The role of the private sector in facilitating the climate transition journey of our world has been much talked about recently. While many corporations, including those in the fossil fuel sector directly and otherwise have started drafting out their own journeys to net zero, Ajay Banga, the new newly appointed president of the World Bank, has also emphasized the need for active private sector finance contributions in the climate transition. There is a growing realization that governments alone cannot do all that is needed to be done to prevent the worst case scenarios that the world is increasingly faced with. And yet, the full scope of how the private sector can actually expedite this once in an era transition has not been explored enough. What can the private sector contribute beyond just committing to net zero timelines? What role will science, R&D and technological innovations by private sector corporations play in our climate transition? How are companies planning out their own net zero journeys and what are the key obstacles and risks they encounter as they embark on this process? Is there alignment globally amongst private sector companies in this direction or are we seeing a lot of greenwashing? How can governments best engage with the private sector to ensure that efforts are aligned and coordinated? Joining us today to discuss these questions and the role of the private sector in the climate transition broadly is Mr. Suresh Narayanan. Mr. Narayanan is the Chairman and Managing Director of Nestle India Limited. He has been in this role since August 2015. He also serves as the Chairman of CII's National Committee on Food Processing Industries. Under Mr. Narayanan's leadership, Nestle India has received several accolades, including most recently MNC in, in India of the Year by All India Management Association, Outstanding Company of the Year by CNBC TV 18, and MNC of the Year by Business Standard in 2020. Mr. Narayanan joined Nestle in 1999 as Executive Vice President for Sales in India, and his career has then commenced from Nestle Indochina in 2003 to stints in the Philippines, Singapore, Egypt, and many other parts of the world. I could go on, but we'll cover a bit of his personal journey in the podcast itself. So, Mr. Narayanan, welcome to Interpreting India. Uh, we're delighted to have you here with us. Thank you, Arirut. Thank you very much. Uh, very nice to be with you. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, so I think, uh, Mr. Narayanan, first of all, thanks for uh, obviously being with us here. When we met for dinner, uh, I said uh, now probably a few months ago, um, I think we had a great initial conversation around the climate transition that is underway in the world, the role the private sector is starting to play in that transition, even though we hear mostly from governments during G20 conversations, COP negotiations, etc. It's clear that the private sector will have a very, very significant role to play in that. So I'm looking forward to speaking to you about both the private sector, but also Nestle in particular, and 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 the thought process and the strategy that's being put into place to meet net zero targets, etc. And of course, talk about India as well, in particular in this climate transition journey, how India is going to evolve in its own path. Uh, so, why? But first, why don't we start off just to kick things off with a little bit about your journey? 
Right, you've you've worked obviously for uh, with Nestle for many years now. Uh, I think we can say decades, and uh, with some other uh, consumer products companies also in the past. But would love to hear just you know as you reflect back on your uh, career in the consumer FMCG space, just a couple of highlights, a couple of good memories, a couple of difficult times, anything really about your journey that uh, you'd like to share. Thank you. Thank you, Rudh. Thank you very much for that uh, question. I don't want this to be uh, an interview that is more on my personal journey, so I'll keep it very short because you have more substantive issues uh, to discuss. Um, let me say that uh, you know my, my career has been uh, that of an uh, accidental corporate guy. I was not meant to be a corporate uh, uh, person. I am a trained uh, economist from the Delhi School of Economics, and there was uh, setting out to be uh, a civil servant. That was because my family had a lot of uh, people from the government, including my father himself, who was a technocrat. Uh, so that was the journey that I was on. And uh, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, I, you know, my my path got uh, deviated. And uh, I joined uh, Hindustan Lever, then it is called now Hindustan Unilever, as a, as a young management trainee. Uh, almost uh, 42 years ago. So, therefore, I've been working in the trenches for uh, for a long time. Uh, I must say that uh, while uh, initially I found myself uh, a kind of outsider in a corporate world that had fundamentally the IITs and IIMs uh, who were dominating because 40 years ago, they were the guys who were uh, the ones who were, uh, who were part of large, large respected multinationals like like a jewel. Uh, but nevertheless, it has been a very, very satisfying journey. I have worked across uh, uh, three companies. I worked at HUL in, in different roles and capacities. I worked uh, briefly for Colgate Power, one of the wonderful company. And then uh, now for the last uh, 24 years, I've been with, uh, with Nestle. And it has been a very, very uh, happy, uh, very inspiring and a very productive journey as well. Uh, working across different countries, uh, you know, I worked in Thailand and Indochina. I worked in Singapore. Uh, I worked in uh, North Africa, Egypt, Libya, Sudan. I worked briefly in the Philippines, and then uh, for the last uh, uh, eight years now, I've been in India uh, as the chairman and managing director of uh, of Nestle India. Uh, been through different situations. I was part of the uh, when the Lehman Brothers crisis took place in. In 2008, I was in Singapore, so therefore I was part of that uh, that meltdown that happened there, and how to keep your uh, your body and soul together as a company, and how to keep your head above water was the main objective at that point in time. Uh, was moved to North Africa uh, before the Arab Spring, and within uh, within about uh, seven months of my uh, going there, or in fact less than that, within about five months of my going there. Uh, the Arab Spring started, so there was an Indian uh, in the Arab Spring uh, in an Arabic-speaking country, not knowing the language, with internet cut, and with tanks outside the house. So there was that was a different journey uh, in itself. Uh, so I've been through some exciting times, and then uh, I thought all would be peaceful till I came back to India during the Maggie crisis. And that was a that was an experience in itself. So. In some sense, I have been the harbinger of either creating a crisis or falling into a crisis, as I put it. And uh, so that's been my my my, uh, my my career. It has been very, very, uh, uh, very inspiring because I've seen different cultures, uh, different generations. Uh, I'm inspired by the by the Gen Z and by the millennials uh, who now 
uh, are the majority of my organization. I learn from them each day, uh, and I look wondrously uh, at the future leaders of this organization. Long after I'm gone, I'm very confident that this company would be in very safe hands of some outstanding leaders with competence, uh, with wisdom, and with compassion. So let me let me leave it at that. So it, I'm a I'm a happy trooper. Uh, I always look at life uh, uh, positively, and uh, that is what has kept me going. I am married. I am uh, happily. I have uh, I have a daughter who uh, recently got married. So therefore, I I am also a, a proud uh, uh, father-in-law now. And uh, yes, we are a, we are a, we are a happy family, and we try and 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 uh, do the best that we can. No, that's lovely. What a uh, <clears throat> what a lovely way to uh, you know give us a quick uh, bird's eye view of your career and your personal journey. And I must say, as I heard you talking about the Lehman crisis and the Arab Spring, I thought you were uh, invoking your uh, inner diplomat or IFS officer uh, dreams that you might have had. And if if your dream was to maybe be an IAS officer. Then I'm sure in the course of this conversation as a policy think tank, we'll definitely invoke your inner policy maker hat also at some point in this conversation. But thank you for sharing that. I think that's really helpful to get a sense of how your journey is, has been and the kind of countries and places and circumstances, both globally and internally at Nestle, you've, uh, you've uh, gone through, managed so successfully. Um, we obviously wanted to jump in into, you know, the main theme we want to cover today, which is the role of the private sector in combating climate change. I think as many of us know, the, the climate crisis is not something that can be handled by any one set of actors alone, not governments alone, not the private sector alone, not uh, international institutions alone, or not citizens alone. It will really require, without making it sound cliche, a whole of society and really whole of earth type effort. But as you hear these conversations happening at the COP negotiations, uh, the IPCC reports that come out, the multilateral development banks and their meetings, the World Bank Spring meetings, you often get, you know, as, as a lay person, you often get the sense that it's the governments that want to drive the agenda. Yet there are many individuals, you know, most notably and most recently, one can quote Mr. Ajay Banga, who <clears throat> now heads the World Bank, who has mentioned how the private sector, especially on the finance side, has to play a critical role, right? And 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 my own thought on that also is that the role of the private sector has to go beyond just finance and its role in, let's say, climate finance as a particular vertical of the climate action strategy the world needs to adopt, has to go much broader. So what I wanted to do was maybe first start off on, uh, you know, adopt a micro lens, talk about Nestle. And then maybe after that, we'll zoom out later in the conversation, talk about the private sector more broadly. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about how Nestle is charting out its own strategy for the climate transition. How are you setting internal targets, internal strategies, internal sort of benchmarks, um, and, and really the strategy to execute on that? So broadly, broadly, Anirudh, I, I completely subscribe to the, uh, to the thought process and uh, indeed what uh, you shared. Uh, I think while governments have an overarching role in terms of developing policies, uh, prescriptions, and actions, uh, to mitigate uh, climate change. And uh, while we can perennially have the debate 
on whether we are depriving the developing countries of the growth opportunity by asking them to mitigate climate change when the uh, the more developed countries have uh, had the benefit of this economic growth. I mean, that will always be a, a, a interesting uh, geopolitical economic debate that will take place. I firmly believe that corporates also have uh, actions that they can take. And I, I don't think we can be, we can be uh, spectators at this party. We have to be participants in it. At Nestle, indeed, I, I believe that uh, companies where sustainability is uh, part of the DNA of the organization uh, tend to do much better. And uh, I believe that uh, at Nestle, uh, we are blessed and I'm blessed to work in an organization where sustainability has been part of the DNA. Uh, the founding father, Andre Nestle, set up this business uh, with the partnership of farmers with the attention to the best quality and safety that products could uh, could give. And he called it Nestle. He gave his own personal name to it. Uh, this has spawned partnerships across dairy industry, partnerships across uh, coffee farmers, spice farmers, and different uh, agricultural entities across the world, long before sustainability became a word even in the, in the, in the lexicon that is being used now across boardrooms and, and wherever. So as a company, uh, I think this has been articulated very well in the last couple of years, where we have definitive uh, strategies. While Anirudh, only 5% of emissions are directly attributable to operations of the company. 95% is really what we call scope two and scope three, uh, which, is, which is because of the value chain and because of the extended uh, value chain. Nevertheless, uh, we have got very clear objectives. Uh, I think the objective for us is that uh, by uh, by 2025, uh, that we reduce uh, the carbon emissions by 20%, uh, 50% by 2030, and net zero uh, by 2050. I think this is a very clearly defined objective for us, and this is what we are working towards. Divided into three or four streams, uh, one stream is the uh, sustainable sourcing stream, whether it is oils, whether it is coffee, whether it is spices, whether it is milk, uh, whether it is uh, regenerative agriculture, this is one big part of it. The second has to do with packaging and uh, and uh, and the use of uh, of uh, plastics. The third is in terms of the energy quotient, renewable energies, and how we can we can we can improve uh, this quotient as we go along. And uh, finally, of course. Integrating our brands, and as you know, Nestle has globally uh, 2,000 brands plus, and trying to integrate the brands onto the sustainability journey. So this is really uh, the three or four pieces of sustainability and climate change that are an integral part of the business operations of all the Nestle operations across the world. So therefore, this is not a head office initiative of the executive board and the CEO. Uh, it is an initiative that is cascaded to countries. So in India, uh, as part of this plan, uh, I have a steering committee uh, that is headed by me as the chairman and managing director. It has my management uh, leadership team members who are personally sponsoring various parts of it. So what does this mean? For example, let me take the sourcing part of it, sustainable sourcing. Can I ask you one question before we go into the four pillars? The you know, at the global level, obviously, there's uh, this whole argument that India and many other developing countries make that you also alluded to of common but differentiated 
responsibilities, right? Given the historical uh, background that you also alluded to, is that somehow also playing out in a global organization like Nestle? Like as you think about these targets that you just laid out for 2050 and the intermediary targets, are your operations and suppliers in developing countries being given longer periods to adjust to these targets and uh, you know shorter targets for let's say suppliers and farmers in developed countries? Or how is that common but differentiated responsibility piece maybe playing out within Nestle globally? Given you span so many countries, yeah, I think one of the things that uh, one of the things that works, Anirudh, is that uh, in the developed world, uh, some of these uh, initiatives are already well underway. Uh, so, therefore, for example, uh, whether it is in uh, in plastics, uh, or it is in environment, or it is in renewable energy, uh, or it is in in in, uh, in in agricultural practices, these have already been uh, in play well before the some of the objectives of the company have uh, been set as far as climate change is concerned. So therefore, they have a, a bit of a head start in terms of uh, the progress that they can they can make and they can they can uh, they can control as far as some of these initiatives are concerned. Uh, however, the company is very 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 fair. We look at uh, what we call the big ticket items, which are the areas where we can make the most significant impact in a period of time and where is it that we can get the best uh, return on the monies and resources that are spent because uh, as you know well Anirudh, sustainability and climate change costs money uh, the consumers are not willing they are, they are appreciative of companies that uh, that follow the path and are sensitive and cognizant of efforts that are being made but if you tell the consumer that you're going to pay two rupees more, simply because uh, I'm doing a sustainability uh, initiative, uh, they will say we'll find some other brand. So therefore, uh, what we look at is really looking at those initiatives uh, where the, the company, uh, the context of the country, uh, the available technologies can bring the necessary heft to make the reductions happen. So each of the, of the, of the elements that I talked about will have a composite element that adds up to that 20% reduction by 2025. Uh, but which countries will do what kind of initiatives uh, would, would vary. Uh, for example, in India, uh, initiatives around plastics, initiative around, around dairy, uh, initiative around coffee, uh, initiatives around spices uh, are important initiatives as far as the company is concerned. But my colleagues, uh, in in Europe, for example, will not be uh, working on some of these projects. They would look more at uh, things like renewable energy, uh, look at uh, look at uh, a reduction of of uh, plastics or some other projects that are more relevant uh, to their environment and to their context. And that's how we manage it as a as a global company. But I think one of the beauties of our system is that no one is let off the hook. Uh, so I cannot take the plea saying that. Uh, in COP26, uh, there was a plea by the Indian government saying that, and maybe from a government perspective, uh, that uh, particular plea makes uh, makes sense in terms of the uh, the the uh, the uh, uh, the energies that we need in order to to grow the economies. It's a fair point, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, that is not a not an excuse that I can take. I am part of Nestle. I am part of the sustainability and climate change. 
um, uh, kind of promise of the company. And therefore, I will bring to the table what I think I can contribute uh, to this particular cause. No, absolutely. And I think that, uh, that that what's very interesting, I think that's one very interesting to see, right? That the way corporates will navigate this uh, process as a global corporate like you are will be very different than how maybe governments will uh, position themselves or navigate the negotiations at forums like COP. The other interesting piece that uh, if I may ask you about is that you, know, you look at Nestle and I'm quite familiar with Nestle over, over time. I've uh, spent a fair bit um, working with and uh, you know studying the CPG or the consumer products and FMCG industry over my own career. And one of the things I find very interesting about Nestle is its focus on science and R&D. And I want to dig into that a little bit, if I may. You know, the, this book, I think we might have spoken briefly when we last met over dinner, was my, in my book uh, called The Great Tech Game. One of the things I talk about is for India uh, and for really any country to succeed in the kind of tech-dominated era that we live in. Right? Uh, where tech is really the new engine of economic growth, is the new wealth of nations. The key capability that I pointed to was R&D, right? If you look at countries or corporations that have succeeded over the last, I would say, several decades across the world, you'll find one common element amongst the top 50, 100 com companies that's not talked about enough, which is their emphasis on R&D. And I believe Nestle is, again, uh, 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 an excellent example of a global conglomerate that has managed to keep R&D at its core and science at its core. Right. So picking off on that, I wanted to ask you, one, what is this science-based approach to targets that, that Nestle uh, speaks about, one? And second, what role do you see for R&D more broadly uh, within the private sector, at least sponsored or funded by the private sector in solving the bigger technological challenges that we face in our climate journey? So I think, I think it's, a, it's a very good question. I think the firstly, um, you know, as Nestle, we uh, we are uh, uh, arguably the single largest investor uh, in the food space uh, as far as R&D is concerned. Almost close to one and a half to two billion dollars are spent each year across about 35 R&D centers, employing almost 5,000 scientists. Uh, they are working on different categories, different product solutions, uh, all of it on a sustainable platform. Uh, on, a, on a platform where uh, the benefits of contemporary science and technology is brought to the product and to the offering. So that's that's number one. If you look at some of the initiatives that I'm doing in India, for example, I'll just take two or three examples of, of what is being done. We have today, uh, and indeed for the last couple of years, a, a, a proprietary technology called ZEREAU, Z-E-R-E-A-U, as, well, as in of water in French. So the Zero uh, uh, initiative is a patented technology that utilizes the water in the liquid milk for the maintenance activities of the plant. So therefore, at our plant in Moga, uh, we use the water that comes out because you know uh, most of our products are, are, are powder-based and therefore we take out the milk. So rather than take out the milk and do nothing with it, we have used that, that uh, the technology to use the water in the milk for the maintenance activities, and thereby we have reduced the draw of water uh, from groundwater by 
So that's a direct benefit to the environment because as you know very well, Anirudh, one of the most stressed states in India on water is Punjab because of the because of the agrarian revolution there and because of the rice and wheat, which are which are water intensive crops, there is a huge stress on water. And therefore, that is something that we are trying to, to, to mitigate. Dairy and dairying is one of the uh, one of the biggest sources of uh, of methane emission as far as uh, as far as uh, the uh, the the value chain is concerned across the world wherever uh, there are dairy farms they are sources of methane because of the uh, of the cows uh, that are there uh, today we are pioneering in the in the in the private sector uh, the installation of biodigesters uh, as far as uh, the utilization of uh, animal waste is concerned uh, we are able to generate uh, energy uh, to uh, to to energize the operations of the dairy farms, uh, we are using it for household consumption, and the slurry is used as natural fertilizer uh, to uh, to help in the regenerative agriculture that we are uh, proponents of, and, uh, and where Nestle is 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 um, is uh, signing on to in a reasonably significant way. So, thereby, what is happening is the technology itself is, and this technology extends also to feed. There are feed technologies today that gives you the uh, benefit of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, solutions uh, that make the digestive system more amenable as far as nutrients are concerned and cause less emissions. So whether it is nutrition, whether it is feed, whether it is it is veterinary science, whether it is biodigesters, these are all areas where Nestle is building the expertise in order to implement it at scale. Now, this typically means that you move from small farms, which is one or two cow farms, to larger farms. And therefore, that journey also is being enabled to move to larger farms because larger farms have per capita a lower uh, emission of, uh, of methane as compared to smaller farms, so this is this will take a long, long time. So it's not going to, you know, it's not going to revolutionize the country immediately. But these are steps that are important. The second plant uh, that I wanted to talk to you about was uh, the uh, coffee plant. Uh, we have a sustainable program of uh, coffee, which is called 4C, which is called the Common Code for the Coffee Community. That's what the 4C stands for. This is sustainability programs across. Uh, three and a half thousand farmers uh, in the southern states where coffee is grown. Uh, we are giving them the best practices in uh, in soil conservation, uh, in water utilization, uh, in minimizing the use of pesticide. As a consequence of this, we are getting coffee from these farmers. Almost sixty percent to seventy percent of our coffee is sourced from these farmers, and we pay them three rupees per kilogram extra for this. Because it is it is an effort to make this this coffee also sustainable. So every time you drink a cup of Nescafe, you can be rest assured that you are actually uh, supporting and you are subscribing uh, to the cause of climate change. And I think I think this is an important uh, initiative that uh, that we've rolled out. Uh, similarly, in the so can I ask you of the two billion of the two billion you are spending, right? Uh, these are wonderful targets, uh, wonderful sort of R and D initiatives that you've outlined, and I know uh, we spoke about millets as well when 
when we last spoke. So I want to come back to the millets question also, maybe a little bit later in the conversation. But on the R&D piece, you mentioned $2 billion, roughly about a year, that Nestle spends globally on R&D. Um, how much of that uh, would maybe, if you can give us some kind of estimate, be applicable only? I imagine some are company-wide, right? Many of them, many of those initiatives would be company-wide. But some of the ones that are maybe India-specific, what kind of spend do you think Nestle India could allocate? Could be said to be allocating to R&D specifically for Indian consumers or Indian producers or suppliers? I, 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 it'll be difficult to link it up on specific programs that are uh, that are India related because India then applies the global technologies that are that are developed. So we are recipients of this because we are a subsidiary of the of 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 uh, Nestle SA. So we are recipients of the technologies and the capabilities that the Nestle group develops. So it's a bit difficult for me to say which part of it was meant for India because it is developed and then rolled out to all countries uh, where this technology is relevant. India is a recipient in coffee, India is a recipient in spices, India is a recipient as far as dairy technologies are concerned. The reason I'm asking also, I understand that it's very hard to break down, break it down maybe by... Uh, the geographic split I was asking, referring to. But the reason I was asking this question is, leads to a slightly bigger question I wanted to ask you, which is <clears throat> related to this R&D piece, one of the key observations that many policymakers now have made, many writers on the question of R&D have made, scientists have made, is that India, compared to other countries, spends a very, very small chunk of its GDP, 06 to 0.7% of its GDP, to be more precise, on R&D, most of it is being spent by pharma companies, by the way. So the bulk of this 0.6% in absolute terms will be spent by pharma companies in India trying to develop uh, often generic uh, drugs um, as well. Whereas the remainder of the economy, the private sector, is not spending that much. I don't have the exact numbers, but that number is more likely to be in the range of 0.1 to 0.2% is my random guess right now, but you look at companies like Nestle or even countries like the US, Korea, Taiwan, countries that are ahead in the in, in the technological race, economically speaking, uh, you find that those countries are spending upwards of 3 to 4% of their GDP on R&D. You look at certain companies, at least in the tech space that I spend most of my time in, companies are spending up to 10% of their uh, turnover on uh, R&D, and that seems to be a source of competitive advantage. But you look at India, it seems to be missing, both at the government level and the private sector level. Why is that, according to you? You've worked in the Indian corporate sector now for a long time. You have probably many colleagues who are working for both Indian FMCG firms as well as you know Indian officers of global firms. Why is it that the Indian private sector is not spending more on R&D? I think, uh, you know, uh, one of the, uh, you know, one is, of course, the the entire scientific uh, uh, temper and the link between science and uh, outcomes that can be had both in the public space and in the in the private space uh, that probably is still a little bit weak. It's one of the one of the areas in in India which can certainly enhance and uh, make for better uh, utilization and better deployment of R and D resources. Uh, is what I call the public-private uh, uh, collaboration, the PPP arrangements that can be that can be called. Those are few and far between. I think some of our scientific establishments are doing a lot of research, but none of this really is in consonance uh, 
uh, with with uh, private enterprise whenever relevant. I'm not saying that you know some of the the highly sensitive defense research doesn't need to be uh, percolated to, to to private enterprise, but some of the other research, uh, for example, on, on agriculture or on processing or on uh, any of the other uh, things like contaminants or or food safety or things like that can certainly be done with a public-private uh, partnership. I think this... What's stopping it today? What's what's preventing it from happening today? Everyone feels uh, kind of comfortable in the space in which they are in. I think the compelling reasons of competitiveness and compulsion uh, hasn't yet taken over. Uh, and I, I presume that that will one day. <clears throat> because most of the companies, if you countries, if you look at it, you know, uh, the, the export-led uh, growth countries uh, like Korea and a few others have had this relationship uh, between the, the, the government establishments uh, and the, uh, the private enterprise. You know, if you look at uh, Japan, for example, again, the links have been very, very strong. I think uh, context and compulsion make for these partnerships to happen. I, I must say that there are, I mean, for example, we uh, have as a company now tied up with the Indian Institute of Military Research, for example. Uh, there is, they have got a project called NutriHub, uh, which is looking at millet uh, processing, millet uh, products, and millet uh, cultivation. Uh, and we have tied up with them as, as the, the Nestle uh, Research, which is based in, uh, in uh, India, uh, which is a global uh, entity of the company. Has tied up with, uh, with the Indian Institute of Military Research. Uh, we are looking at other such initiatives as well. I must say, Anirudh, that uh, this has been greatly welcomed by the Indian Institute of Military Research. And in fact, uh, I must say in all fairness uh, that they were equally enthusiastic about it because they said, look, somebody is giving, uh, is, is lending voice to the work that we are doing. And we said, look, we are happy because we are a nutrition company. We believe in the power of millets and uh, we will be happy to. Uh, to look at uh, ways and means of improving cultivation, including improving processing, because one of the challenges in millets is the processing of millets. And uh, that, that again, Nestle has got some expertise uh, globally, and uh, the Indian Institute of Millet Research has also got uh, some expert locally. So therefore, uh, there is this, there is a possibility. I think uh, inertia is on both sides. I will not say that you know a private sector has suddenly snapped out of its uh, of its uh, of its. Uh, 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 kind of slumber and said we should have tie-ups. Neither has the, the government sector suddenly said we should not have it. I think wherever there is meaningful steps which are being taken, uh, I think such arrangements can be worked out. Yeah, and I think they'll be critical. I mean, in a, in a, in a country like India where, you know, as, 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 as you mentioned, both from a nutrition standpoint, uh, from a sustainability standpoint, you mentioned, you know, the water-intensive crops that are um, that are being grown in many states and farmers are reliant on those particular crops that are water intensive that then drain the ground uh, water levels to you know unsustainable levels or you can talk about it even from a health standpoint um, you know you, you I think serve on the CI committee for food processing uh, as well and you know one of the questions that um, is always there with rising incidence of diseases that are arising from overconsumption of, you know, overprocessed foods, right? Uh, we've moved over the last few generations, I feel even in India, away from the fresh, local, seasonal food diets that we used to have. 
um, to more packaged food, more processed food, and you know that's eventually showing up and will start to show up more and more in the in the incidence of diseases, right, uh, amongst the population. So I think from various standpoints, it's very important that the kind of research that can be done collaboratively between between the public and the private sector should be done on a war footing because, you know, millets, you mentioned, obviously, you know, the prime minister has announced it as the year of the millets. There's a policy push towards it. We know that millets are hardier, don't need as much water. Uh, Of course, uh, and India is a good source of many of these millet crops, right? Historically, even before wheat and rice, uh, people say Indians have been consuming millets. So there's obviously a lot of value possibly there. To, to do the research, I think the kind of initiatives that you, you've mentioned, you embarked on, um, and seems like various challenges, right? Both from a funding, inertia, mindset, uh, maybe capabilities on both sides, maybe unfamiliarity of capabilities on both sides that need to be resolved. I'm sure you're familiar that the cabinet has also passed a, a bill recently about the National Science Foundation to push for the R&D. I know the Principal Scientific Advisor's Office is also trying to uh, do a lot of work to facilitate this kind of joint collaboration. So, no, I think it's a it's a it's a good step. It's a good, good step. The, the only perspective I would like to add is while there is a lot of emphasis on fresh food and freshly cooked food, it's all good, and I think I think uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, scientifically valid and uh, also true. But the fact is, providing for food security. Uh, would still entail uh, packaged foods uh, because of the of the question of shelf life uh, and of the distances that uh, that products have to go and uh, still we have not cracked that uh, that code of being able to take fresh food across to every home and uh, give them great content so therefore i think this balanced perspective i'm not talking about over processed food but certainly as far as processed food is concerned and what some of the other better nutrients can bring to the table uh, needs to be dispassionately discussed from the point of view, not just of what is idealistic, but what is pragmatic. I mean, the fact is that when somebody is, is, is hungry for a roti in, the, in a village uh, and he needs to buy that, uh, that atta in a, from a packet, uh, he needs to buy that atta from a packet. I mean, uh, he doesn't have the chakki and he doesn't have the wheat crop to be able to, to help it uh, get the fresh uh, flour as far as the product is concerned. So I think this needs to be seen in perspective, but I understand uh, understand the overall context uh, that uh, the comment is being made. No, absolutely. I think a balanced approach where you have multiple socioeconomic, political, as well as health challenges, uh, it has to be a mixed approach over time, right? That, that you transition towards. Um, and, you know, that's a good segue into the other question I wanted to now get into, which is... The, the the scope for private and public sector, we've spoken a little bit about obviously Nestle and the private sector and its role in the climate transition. I want to now talk about how the two, the public and the private, can collaborate or work together in solving the climate uh, issue that's at hand. Um, and also more specifically, from your perspective, what are the key you know, regulatory, policy, technological, financial hurdles that you anticipate in such collaboration, right? Or even where you feel some kind of unlocking from a policy standpoint could help you uh, expedite your own transition uh, at Nestle. Look, I think I think it's a, it's a good question, but uh, you know, a few things that uh, we need to we need to kind of uh, have on the table. Uh, firstly, for 
the the projects which are long gestation needing a lot of capital uh, for example the whole dairy revolution uh, that we're talking about will need considerable amount of of uh, of not only science but also uh, progress in terms of uh, financing uh, i think this is where uh, uh, indian financial institutions along with multilateral agencies uh, needs to come together uh, to uh, to help in this transition uh, because if we have to transition dairy into the new world of uh, of uh, climate friendly or relatively climate friendly uh, uh, industry and, and and dairy as you know uh, we are the world's biggest uh, milk producers so we have a vested interest as far as uh, dairy and dairy farming is concerned i think uh, between policy between technology and also financing uh there needs to be a closer uh, uh cooperation uh, that needs to be done as far as the regulatory framework is concerned i don't think there are too many impediments i, I think the the uh, on the regulatory front what is really important is uh, the usage of ingredients the usage of technologies the quality and safety standards and calibrating ourselves as a country to what is possible by us you know just taking international standards and slapping them on on onto the indian packs uh, is not going to work because uh, the fact is that we are at different stages of the of the technology cycle uh, in terms of sophistication knowledge and application as far as uh, these things are concerned so i think these are some of the things that uh, we can certainly uh, do i'm very happy that uh, uh, you know the the government is quite receptive as far as uh, some of the suggestions are concerned on the regulatory frameworks i think on the on the uh, on what can be done as far as dairying is concerned uh, more discussion would need to be involved because the fact is that india still is a country of small dairy farmers most of the farmers uh, you know it's like it's like land holding 80 85% is uh, is uh, less than 2 hectares similarly most of the dairy farms are one or two cows and uh, we are able to get scale benefit of climate change uh, only when the farms become slightly bigger which means that we have to upgrade and help the farmers to upgrade you can't just tell a farmer you got two cows or uh, have five cows tomorrow where is he going to find the money and each cow uh, is 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 going to set him back uh, by at least uh, 50000 rupees to a lakh of rupees so it's not it's not small money as far as these farmers are concerned Absolutely, and let me now transition to maybe a slightly broader question that I want to conclude with, which is: Now, if I was to have you take off your Nestle hat for a second, take it off for a second, um, and think about it now from a India strategy standpoint. Now, as uh, you know, as, as these big transitions take place in the world, any kind of transitions that that create economic opportunity, right? Whether it's industrial revolution and the tech revolution etc there's often opportunities that are there for countries to grab right we've spoken about korea taiwan countries like that that really benefited uh, over the last 30 40 50 years from the globalization of supply chains for example and they tapped that opportunity and benefited from it now as we see climate as an opportunity for a second we've spoken of it in cha- challenge terms of course but as an opportunity where do you see mr narayan india having certain maybe pockets of great opportunity that if tapped could position india 
and Indian corporates, Indian private sector as leaders globally in certain, either it could be certain sectors, it could be certain technologies in the broader climate space. What's your uh, what's your viewpoint on that sort of foresight on that? I think I think I just would like to make uh, two or three points. Number one, I think uh, India is, and I genuinely believe that we have uh, walked the uh, we have walked with leadership as far as the climate change debate is concerned. I think we have not only talked about what impedes us, but we can we have also talked about what can progress us. I think India's opportunity as far as uh, renewable uh, sources of energy is concerned is huge. I mean, we we already have invest, uh, invested uh, quite a bit in renewable energy, including uh, things like clean hydrogen and others. Uh, we will become, I believe, uh, with with uh, with with some effort, one of the one of the biggest hubs as far as renewable energy is concerned. I think I think renewable energy and cleaning up the energy sector is clearly one big contribution that India can make, not only to our own economy, but also as far as uh, the, uh, the the world economy is concerned. Uh, the second piece I, th- I believe we've got uh, is really on uh, uh, renewable agriculture. It's a long journey. We still are using a lot of fertilizers. So therefore, uh, we have to make the transition quite, uh, 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 quite reasonable and quite pragmatic. We don't want to land up with the issue that some of our neighboring countries have had when they have cut out fertilizers, suddenly the yields crashing and them having a a food sustainability issue. But I think agriculture is clearly, agriculture and dairy is clearly an area where India can also uh, make its contribution. But overall terms, I think India is bringing maturity to the debate. I have, from whatever I've read, I've not seen uh, shrill statements being made uh, that uh, de- deny us uh, the capability or the capacity or indeed the willingness uh, to be part of the of the of the climate change journey. I think these two or three opportunities uh, would really uh, help us uh, to to make the make the mark that we want to, and hopefully uh, improve our own environment. Because uh, I think if you if you look at Anirudh, uh, the millennial research that we did some time back, the three most important. Uh, requirements of uh, the millennials or the Gen Z today is uh, clean water, uh, clean air, uh, and uh, and clean food. I think these are these are you know the ba- the basics is really what uh, what uh, the, the people are 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 praying for, and I think that's that's possible if you are able to take these steps. Yeah, and I, I you know I'll, I'll add just one thing uh, on on that point before we conclude, which is. You know, I think India, from an agriculture standpoint that you mentioned, it's very critical that India develop, obviously, agri-technology, biotechnology, um, you know, alternative fertilizers, etc., to meet its own requirements. But at the same time, I think as supply chains get reimagined now, both because of geopolitical reasons, but even otherwise, as, you know, we make the climate transition and the whole economic basis of our production maybe transforms because of that imperative. Very critical for India to think very hard about pretty much each sector, major sector, and think about where in that overall supply, global supply chain, will India find its own role or its own uh, indispensability? And that's really where my, my own sense is that that's really where wealth generation then will start to happen. We can be very well consumers of renewable energy technology being built and manufactured, uh, developed and IP owned elsewhere. But unless we start to focus on developing that IP ourselves, 
And at least in some sectors, I think that we'll end up remaining users of technology and adopters, but not necessarily developers or producers of it. No, I think I think you're making a valid point, Andrew, because what we can bring to the table is also technology. And I think I think uh, use of artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, uh, drone technologies, and others, uh, we are pretty good at. I mean, as, as a country, we have got some expertise here. And being the fifth largest economy now in the world and also the largest population in the world, uh, whatever difference we can make to the climate will make a difference to the world. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. Uh, to look at it in that way. And, and therefore, uh, while there is a, a long path ahead, uh, there is, I believe, Arunut, I at least would like to believe that there is room for optimism in terms of the journey that we can uh, traverse as a country and also certainly uh, as a company, Nestle can traverse that journey as well. And on that optimistic note, let me thank you, Mr. Narayanan. We've run out of time for our conversation today, but it's been absolutely fascinating. I think we've covered a lot of topics and uh, lots of different perspectives that uh, you've helped us uh, look at. So thank you for sharing all of that, taking the time and we look forward to continue to engaging with you over time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I would like to thank you for this opportunity, uh, for the conversation and for the uh, the stimulation and the inspiration uh, that you have provided. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Narayan. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and our team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.